You're listening to a Joy podcast. To check out more podcasts from Joy 94.9, head to joy.org.au. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is adventurer, activist, and mountaineer, Kaysen Crane. So when I started uh, on Denali, I was determined to reach the summit. So determined that I had actually arranged an expedition that was that was longer than most. It was actually a four-week-long expedition because I knew that the weather could be very unpredictable on Denali, and I wanted to make sure we. Yes, it might be more painful. We might have a lot more, you know, food and fuel that we had to carry. But I deliberately arranged it that way so that I could maximize my chance of getting to the summit, assuming that physically I could actually make it up. And about two, two and a half weeks later, I had made it, my whole team, we had made it all the way up to high camp on Denali at 17,200 feet. And from there, you're one challenging day from the summit, but just one. And we, we got up to that high camp, we, came, we set up camp, and we got into our tents and immediately got stuck in a six-day-long blizzard. Stop. Yeah. Kaysen Crane is no stranger to adversity as the first openly gay man to conquer the seven summits, all while raising money and awareness for the Trevor Foundation, America's LGBTQIA suicide prevention organization. Not every climb was easy. Climbing Mount Denali was especially hard. I was climbing Mount Denali which is the highest mountain in North America. And it's also, it's the most physical of the seven summits, meaning on Everest, almost everyone who climbs Everest in some way or another is gonna be supported by a Sherpa or a group of Sherpas. And they are incredible people who are so strong and the vast, vast majority of people, even professional climbers, the reality is they're all benefiting from the Sherpas that have helped lay the, you know, break the trail on the mountain and lay the ropes and all these things. So everyone's benefiting on Everest, whether you're an amateur climber or a professional from that. And on Denali, you don't have that. Yes, there are other people on the mountain. Yes, there's the National Park Service that keeps some kind of semblance of authority and and kind of safety. But you fly onto the glacier and immediately you are pulling a sled with 50 to 100 pounds in addition to the 50 to 80 pounds of pack that you're carrying on your back. And that's how you start out because there's no, there's no like supply depots or anything like that. You bring everything you need for that three to five week expedition. And you're carrying that with you. And when I say carrying, I mean carrying and dragging. And so from day one, it is such a physical climb. So two weeks into one of his hardest climbs, he finds himself in a six day blizzard merely one challenging day from the summit. It was crazy. It was a nonstop blizzard. There were only moments, I mean, maybe like 10 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes where there'd be a little gap in the snow and the wind. And you just got used to this perpetual soundtrack of the wind battering the tent. And every day we'd have to go out and you know shovel the snow off from the side of the tent so it didn't collapse. And you, we literally spent all day and all night for six days in a tent and it was you know it was three men in our case because i was in a tent with two other guys three men to a tent which is well i guess it depends on the size of the tent in this case it's a bit of a tight squeeze and all you can do is just let the time slip by i luckily had uh, i had brought like a little ipod 
shuffle so that I, I could listen to music. So I had my iPod until that died because there wasn't any sun for the solar panel. You know, we had a, I had a little solar panel. So it's just this, it's almost like a Vipassana, you know, like a silent retreat where you get immersed in this, uh, in this moment and in this like kind of mindfulness of just being in that separated state that feels otherworldly. At this point, all I wanted to know was what happened next. So finally, the storm breaks. But at that point, six days later, we had run out of food. It wasn't, you know, not running out of food like, oh, my gosh, we're going to starve. Just running out of food as in like, we can't stay up there anymore. We need to go back down to the, the next camp where we had we had left most of our additional supplies. And so we, we made the choice. There was a, a bit of a break in the blizzard. So we decided to pack up our camp and go down. And this it was a very challenging moment for me because it was the first time, you know, I'd been climbing these mountains for about seven months. And it was the first time where I really felt defeated. As we walked down that peak from or from that high camp, I felt like there wasn't a way that I could actually succeed in this goal. And it almost felt like maybe I had set the goal too high. Maybe trying to do all the seven summits in a year and a half was too ambitious. Or maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Because you know what? I knew people, someone on my team had tried Denali three times. And this was the third time that he hadn't summited. And he was a perfectly strong climber. It just, it hadn't worked out. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to, how am I going to bounce back from this? Is the whole project, this whole endeavor to raise money for an, an awareness for LGBTQ suicide prevention, is it all for naught? And serendipitously, I had an experience going down that radically transformed my view on this subject and, and uh, changed my perspective. Before we find out what happened that forever changed Kaysen's outlook, let's find out what inspired him to climb the world's seven summits in the first place. From when I was a little kid, you know, I grew up in a, in a family with two parents and five of us kids. And from when, like from truly like the first, my first real memories, my parents were always encouraging us and pushing us to do more, to try and get us out of our comfort zones. And whether this was trying new foods um, or, you know, going to places that, you know, we weren't, we didn't go on beach vacations. I was very lucky to grow up in a household where we would take, we could take vacations and travel, but we, we literally, I don't, I cannot think of a single childhood vacation that was to a beach. They would be vacations to Mongolia, where we spent a month riding on horseback from the northern border of Mongolia and Russia to the capital city in the center of the country. Or, you know, going to Ethiopia and spending our days exploring the ancient sites of Lalibela or the, you know, Islamic sites in Harar or, or you know, spending time and, and visiting and understanding, trying to understand the history and culture of a place. Like, it was no, there was no real quote unquote, vacation, as most people would define it, it was about understanding, pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. And, and so that then translated into sports from a young age. And I got into triathlon at a young age at this, my mother did as well. She's been a formative influence in my life. So she and I started doing that. And we started with little sprint triathlons. And then we got to, you know, when I was 12 years old, which is this is actually wild. But when I was 12 years old, my mother and I did a half Ironman distance triathlon together. I don't even know. I mean, that nowadays, that's not even like allowed for liability issues. You have to be 18 years old. I was 12. I came in second to last place, but I didn't care because it was never about 
what place you came in. It was about whether or not you had pushed yourself as hard as you could and achieved more than what you thought possible. And uh, so, yeah, so that was, that philosophy was ingrained uh, in me by both my parents from a very young age. I mean, the thing, the crazy thing is, it, I was very proud in that moment, but it didn't feel exceptional. And now looking back, I, I look, I, I look at photos of myself at 12 years old. And because in my own memories of being 12, I think of myself as like, yeah, I was, I was a, a kid, but I, I was, I was a prematurely mature 12 year old, you know, I like to think that I've always been a young adult, even when I was, when I was a teen, but I look at photos and I'm like, wow, I was really, really young. Physically, I was tiny, but, but, you know, it, it just, it was not about winning. You know, we are all, you know, my siblings and I are all competitive. That is true. I won't ever deny that, but it, it's always been about the experience and how that experience can translate into broadening one's own horizons and trying to make the most of the opportunities presented. Because, you know, if it wasn't already clear, it should be by now that, you know, I grew up with enormous privilege, so many privileges that many people don't have access to or don't get to experience in their life. And that was, you know, I, I think, you know, really when you're in that position of having privilege to that magnitude, you have two choices. You can either just do nothing and just enjoy it or try and kind of maximize it and think, okay, I have this opportunity. What can I do with it? And that's how I've tried to live my life. When I was 14 years old, I had started high school and I was going to a different high school than the rest of my siblings. So I had a different spring break schedule than anyone else. And so my mother and I huddled up you know i've always been very very close with her and we said okay well what you know what can we do just you and me what can we do that would be a really great mother-son bonding experience and she suggested that we go uh and do and, and climb mount kilimanjaro uh in africa which was something that she had always wanted to do it was on her bucket list and of course i you know never wanting to disappoint my mother. I said, that sounds great. And she looked at the, the calendar and believe it or not, she discovered that the Kilimanjaro marathon and half marathon uh, coincided with my spring break. So we signed up, she signed up for the marathon, I did the half marathon, and then we immediately, so we signed up and then we, we did an expedition on of Mount Kilimanjaro immediately following the marathon uh, and half marathon. So as if we weren't already sore enough from the race, uh, we went straight into a seven day mountaineering expedition. And for those who aren't familiar, Mount Kilimanjaro is an extremely high mountain. It's the highest mountain in Africa and and really it's it's a massive peak but it's not technical so there's no actual technical climbing skills there's no crampons or or ropes needed to get to the summit so effectively it's it's the world's like highest trekking peak but it definitely is a mountain and people do get injured or even die on Kilimanjaro because it's so high so it's it's certainly you know you're taking a risk it's an adventure in its own right and so we we did that expedition and I literally got off the mountain and I said, I can't like, what, what can we do next? And it took a couple years. I, I had three more years after that of high school that I, I doubled down on my work. I finished, I applied to university, got into university. And then after graduating from high school, I went back and I, I was able to take a year and a half and dedicate it to, uh, to climbing and to climbing some of the world's biggest mountains that I had been dreaming about ever since I had stepped foot on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro four years prior. Wow. Is your mom jealous that you got to do them all? 
<laughs> well, again, great question. So not only is she jealous, she's also taking her time, but doing them all herself, actually. So she has now done, it's taken her a little longer, but she did Kilimanjaro. She's now done Kilimanjaro four times. She went back with all of my other siblings and my father and- Hoping that they would get hooked too and then do all seven summits as well. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. She's always looking for expedition, you know, other people to go on expedition with her. So she she did that. She did Mount Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe, um, with one of my brothers, I think one or two, one or two, I think my brother and my cousin, if I remember correctly. Again, always looking for those other expedition folks. She did Aconcagua with my sister. Now that, Mount Aconcagua in Argentina, that's the highest mountain outside of the Himalayas. So it's an extremely high altitude peak. It's not very technical but the altitude can be massively challenging for people. So she and my sister had a, a really powerful expedition a year and a half ago now uh, going up Aconcagua and you can actually read about it. They, uh, a New York Times reporter went up the mountain with them and did a beautiful profile in the New York Times that is worth reading. So they had a phenomenal experience and uh, there's actually, she only has three peaks left, Mount Vincent in Antarctica, uh, Mount Denali in Alaska, and then Mount Everest. Truly last night, she said to me at the dinner table, she said, so, you know, Kaysen, I, I've been thinking when, you know, what do you think I would need to do at this point to climb Everest next year? Um, and I was like, mother, honestly, I think at this point you are like, Denali is probably gonna be a little bit more of a challenge because it's a bit more of a physical climb, but you can do it. You have the experience, you have the skills. Um, the biggest challenge she's facing is that she actually has stage four lung cancer. Uh, so she is on a bit of a clock trying to, she has a never ending bucket list, but she's she's uh, continuing to try and uh, live her best life, even as she uh, you know fights the good fight against uh, stage four lung cancer. Wow, well, she sounds incredibly strong. She is, she's an inspiration. Absolutely. She's incredibly stubborn, incredibly inspiring. You know, she, she is the best. I, she is my ultimate role model and all of the feats that I have sought to accomplish or achieve in my life, it's all been very largely inspired by, um, by her and what she has taken on and achieved in her life. That's so lovely. And also, yeah, I mean, really, from the story you just told, you wouldn't be where you are if it weren't for her being like, hey, spring break, let's climb a mountain. <laughs> Exactly. And that's one of her best qualities. And again, it's something I've tried to emulate, which is that it's never been about when you speak with her, she's never saying, oh, yeah, I just did this thing. Oh, it was so hard. You know, good luck. You know, I don't think you could really do that. It's, oh, my gosh, I just did this amazing thing. Why don't we like, why don't you and I do something like that next time? Or let's find an adventure for us to go on. She's always trying to include people and bring people in and encourage people to join whatever adventure she's plotting next. And I just love that quality because I think a lot of people are scared off because you know what? Most people who climb Everest, it's in their best interest to tell everyone in the world that it's so hard and that nobody else can do it. And that it's this incredible challenge that they had to dig so deep to do. And yes, it is hard, but I think that sort of rhetoric is exclusionary and discouraging. At the end of the day, people can do it. More people can do it than they than actually they are led to believe. And so I think that's a really important uh, message that she tries to, to send to people. Kaysen's mum hasn't climbed all seven summits, but she will. And she has the advice of her son to help her get there. We've really got to get to the most pressing question now, though. I want to know... Can you pick a favorite child? Is there a favorite summit of yours? <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. For me, it's Mount Everest. Mount Everest, uh, it's the mountain that even before I even had an inkling of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with my mother or anything like that, it's the mountain that I dreamed of one day stepping foot on. It's like when you grow up and you think, oh, I want to be a firefighter or an astronaut or president of the United States or go to the moon. You know, it's like it's like that. It's like, oh, I want to step foot on the moon. I want to step foot on Mount Everest. So personally to me, uh, it was it was just the fulfillment. Climbing Mount Everest was the fulfillment of a of truly a lifelong dream. So putting aside the other features, yeah, it's just incredible. Certainly Everest is on a lot of people's bucket lists. For those who haven't or who can't, this is what it feels like to reach the summit of the world's highest mountain. It was mid-May 2013, and I was climbing with my Sherpa, awesome, awesome guy. Kami Rita was his name, super, super strong climber. And so he and I, you know, this is the culmination of a two-month-long expedition, two months where I had had only intermittent contact with my loved ones and my parents, two months in which I had not seen any natural greenery at all, two months of eating, you know, expedition food, which I was lucky to have very good expedition food, but it's still expedition food at high altitude. And, you know, two months of always being in, you know, in your, in your, in your cold weather gear. So we, we set out at midnight. You could, even when you walked out of the tent at high camp, you're already in the death zone. So you, we'd already spent, well, we'd already spent several hours there resting up before our, our midnight departure. And you can see this little trail of lights that almost looks like a constellation in the darkness ahead of you. And those are the, the headlamps of the other climbers going up for the summit. In on my summit day, there was quite a few climbers. I think it was like 80 to 100 people attempting the summit that day. It was a beautiful, beautiful, meant to be a beautiful day. And it, it ended up being one. Kami Rita and I started climbing and he and I pulled away because if you go too slowly, you can get you know frostbite or frost nip on your fingers or toes. So we we kept up our pace, quickly ran into other climbers, and so we unclipped from the fixed line. So that's a rope that's anchored in all the way to the summit to keep people hooked in in case they trip or fall. So we actually unclipped from that fixed line, which obviously is taking an additional risk, but we thought it was warranted to keep up our you know to not get cold and to to pass these other uh, these other folks and. We just got into this rhythm and this routine and we were climbing, climbing, climbing. Ultimately, we passed, uh, we actually passed everyone in front of us and reclipped in. And I remember <laughs> the the expedition leader radioed up to us uh, and, and at one point midway through the night and and was like, uh, you know, Kaysen, Kamirita, you're, you're, you're going to summit in the dark if you don't slow down. And she's like, trust me, you know, this is Lydia Brady, who's just a phenomenal and incredible inspiration for me and, and my climbing mentor and coach and so she uh you know she was like you really you guys should slow down but we we kept going undeterred i was like my, my top priority is not getting frostbite or frostnet so we finally get up to the summit and um it, it's almost at the at first it seems almost um almost like you're not actually there because it, it kind of it's not a, a sharp it's not a sharp pointy peak it kind of levels off almost like a little like a little dome but you can tell it's the summit because there's this pile of prayer flags, traditional Tibetan prayer flags that have been placed there by climbers and Sherpas over the preceding season and the prior years. And I remember getting up there and sure enough, it was still pitch black. Uh, it was only 4, 10 a.m. Should have listened to Lydia. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it was, so it was 4, 10 a.m. But I just remember 
I, I remember getting up to the top and my cheeks were, uh, were frozen with tears that um, I had started crying and my teardrops immediately froze on my cheeks. And I was just overwhelmed with emotion. Even now, reminiscing on it, I'm actually getting a little emotional. Emotional for a couple reasons. Just being at the highest point in the world is such a, it just felt so momentous. And to know that I had brought, I had brought my own prayer flags up that were dedicated to LGBT young people whose lives had been lost to suicide. And knowing that I had brought their spirits with me and messages from their loved ones to this place, it just just all of these emotions were swirling around and just hit me. Oh, it was incredible. It, you're above the clouds and you're actually, you're above everything. I mean, the Himalayas, those are the highest mountains in the world. All of the world's highest mountains are in the Himalayas. And yet everything around you is lower and smaller. And there are very few places in the world where you feel that the incredible force and magnitude of that scale. I mean, truly, like when you're in a jetliner, you know, going at 30,000 feet, that is effectively what it's like being on the summit of Everest, which is 28,800 feet. Only you've just climbed all the way up there and <laughs> had this amazing experience. You haven't just walked through customs. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair point. That's probably why I was crying on the summit of Everest, but not crying when I'm on the airplane. <laughs> oh, incredible. It sounds amazing. So you've done the seven summits now. You've done these amazing climbs. You've had these up and down experiences, but mainly probably just really wonderful lived experience. What do you do next? What have you been doing after that once you've succeeded at this mission? Yes. So thank you. I mean, to me, the success, I, I was so proud, obviously, of myself for climbing the seven summits, but I was actually even more proud for all that I was able to do for the Trevor Project. Um, I ended up raising $135,000 for the Trevor Project, um, which was, uh, you know, it's just such an incredible organization. And um, as I'm, as well, I, I wish more people knew this, but you know, suicide is such a big issue in the LGBTQ community. So it was um, that was honestly what I was most proud of was being able to have an impact on that issue, which I cared deeply about. And then I, I started university in the fall. So I, I after Everest, I climbed Denali. I completed the seven summits. I started university, and you know, as as a goal-oriented person, I, I set my goal of, of kind of doing as, as well as I could in university. So I focused on that and uh, that didn't really afford me much time to continue big expeditions, which have always been my preferred form of mountaineering. Uh, I love the, you know, the two week, three week, four week, even, you know, month or two month long expeditions. I thrive in those environments, but I didn't really have time to do that in college. Um, so instead I started doing other endurance sports where I could get that same satisfaction of pushing myself out of my comfort zone. Uh, so I, since then I've done five Ironman triathlons. I've done half, half a dozen um, ultramarathon races. Many of these have been with my mother, uh, which has been a really great experience. Um, as I mentioned before, she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer two years ago. So uh, basically after I graduated college, you know, she was diagnosed a few months thereafter and my adventures have become whatever my mother wants to do. If she asks me to do it, I say yes. And we do it. <laughs> Whether that's running a marathon in Alaska, because she was doing a marathon in every state and Alaska was her second to last state. So whether it's running a marathon in Alaska with one week notice or 
doing a seven day, 250 kilometer ultra marathon in Madagascar um, or doing Ironman Wisconsin last September with her uh, because, you know, she's done an Ironman every year, at least one every year for the last 10 years. That is my kind of new normal. And, and then from a non-sports perspective, my latest challenge has been launching a business. Um, I am, I'm starting a cold brew coffee business called Explorer Cold Brew. My goodness, I love cold brew. I am so glad to hear that. Me too. <laughs> so the company I'm launching, Explorer Cold Brew, we have uh, very premium cold brew. It's organic and fair trade, Ethiopian beans, but you can customize your caffeine level. So each little serving of concentrate um, you you get a box of twelve, and you pick what which of our four caffeine levels you want. Yeah, I mean that's awesome for me personally. I love cold brew, so I'm very on board with this project. <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I want to know if someone was starting out mountaineering or had this idea in their mind that they wanted to do that. What would be your piece of advice or pieces of advice for them? I think there's a lot of people out there who aren't even at the point where they say, oh, I want to do mountaineering. I think they're living their life and they might sense, you know, some people more acutely than others, that something is missing, that they might be happy, they might be living a great life in so many ways, but they're just, there's just something that they're missing. And I think that what I would tell those people is that that is such a common feeling. And I have felt that way at so many different points in my life. And the key is to take that feeling and try and figure out what your Everest is, what your adventure is, because it might not be mountaineering. It might be running. It might be swimming. It might be art. It might be coffee tasting. It might be video gaming. Honestly, the, you know, the, the possibilities in today's day and age are endless. And so, you know, the, the first part I would say is if you, if you have that feeling, don't let that freak you out. Don't let that make you sad. Just try and fill, you know, try, try and think of or try new activities and see what clicks with you, whether it's writing or sports or, you know, arts and crafts or whatever it is. And to your point about mountaineering and, and uh, let's just say endurance sports in general, what advice I'd have is while at first climbing a big mountain or doing an Ironman triathlon might seem impossible or it might seem daunting, I guarantee that it's not. And that anyone, and I say, I truly mean anyone, if you had to do an Ironman triathlon tomorrow, a 2.4 mile swim by, you know, followed by a 112 mile bike by a 26.2 mile run, you can do it. Basically, all I'm trying to say is it might not be easy. It might take you a really, really, really long time, but you can do it and just know that and start with some degree of confidence that your body and you, you, your, your brain, your body and your, your mental approach can do it. I think the the biggest thing I hear from people, many of whom are already physically fit in, in some way or another is, oh, I could never do that. They say it about a marathon. Some people even say it about a half marathon, which I, again, I understand, but my message is don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged and find your own version of Everest. Wonderful advice from Casey Crane there. But what happened on his descent from his almost climbing Mount Denali the first time that made him shift his views? As we were walking down from high camp to what's called 14,000 foot camp, um, named because it's 14,000 feet. <laughs> um, wow, that's 
so original. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. High camp is known as 17,000 foot camp, you know, uh, then it's 14 camp and anyway, and so on. Us Americans, we're so creative. <laughs> but as you go from high camp to 14 foot camp, you you uh, traverse what's called a knife edge ridge, which means it's a very, very steep and, or I should say exposed ridge, meaning there's a big drop on both sides. And as with any climbing or most climbing on a, on a glaciated peak, like on an ice capped peak, you're roped up to your teammates. And that's both in case someone falls into a crevasse, which is more common on like a glacier, or in case somebody were to slip and fall off of a ridge like the one we were traversing. And I was the second team member on our rope team. So there was one of my teammates, Greg, in front of me. And we're about halfway through the traverse. And all of a sudden, we're on the ground sliding off the ridge because Greg had tripped and was sliding off of the off of the ridge. And so my kind of training and instinct kicked into gear and I self-rested with my ice axe and and we stopped the fall. What does that mean? So basically imagine four people connected, you know, they're each wearing a harness and they're connected by about 10 feet, 10 to 15 feet of rope in between each person. And you leave some uh, you leave some slack in between each person, uh, of course, because you don't want it to be overly taut. But then imagine sliding and all of a sudden you're being pulled and yanked at the waist. And, um, you know, it, it's happening more quickly than you can imagine. You're on the ground, you know, you're wearing a helmet, maybe your helmet hits a, a rock and that rope is just yanking at your waist. And so you take the ice axe that's in your hand and you slam it as hard as you can, the, the pointy side in, obviously, into the ice and, and use that to uh, basically slow down the, or ideally, I mean, stop the, the fall. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that happened, luckily. So my ice, I lodged my ice axe into the ice and that stopped the fall. And, uh, and then, of course, the rope was still taut because Greg, my teammate who had fallen, was still hanging off the ridge. Now, when you're picturing this, don't, don't you're not thinking of like a sheer cliff. Just think like slightly less than sheer, <laughs> a very, very, very steep slope. Um, it, it, it's one that he could, on his hands and knees, crawl back up slowly, uh, which he then did. But he was incredibly shaken. I mean, we were all shaken, but you could just see he was shaking. So we actually went back up to high camp, set up a tent, got him, made him, you know, set up the, the little, the, the stove, made him some hot tea and just took 30 minutes there and regrouped. Um, and uh, I mean, we needed to do that because it was such a, such a traumatic experience for him and for the rest of the team. I mean, that was, it was an incredibly scary moment. The self-doubt that I had been stewing in for the first part of that day was gone. And all I could think about at that point was, thank God I'm still alive and still in one piece. And guess what? The mountain will always be here. The most important thing is that we all get off this mountain in one piece so that we can attempt it again at whatever point that is. And what that taught me was that success and failure are so important, right, for goal setting. You need to have goals, you need to be able to kind of strive to achieve them. But at the end of the day, they should be flexible. <laughs> success and one's definition of success 
should be flexible. In this case, my definition of success started as I need to reach the summit of this mountain. And then it changed to I need to leave this mountain in one piece with all my fingers and toes and limbs intact um, so that you know I can always come back and attempt it again. And luckily, I ultimately was able to go back the following year, a year later, and successfully summit Denali. But just approaching each climb and even just my life in general with that attitude shift, its I've never forgotten that moment and what it taught me. I've learned so very much off Kaysen today, and I hope you have too. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresida. When you hear other people out there who have climbed Everest or have done a bunch of Ironmans talking about how hard it is, tune them out. <laughs> It, it, there are certainly times it will be hard. It's hard no matter whether you're Michael Phelps or whether you're just an amateur athlete just going for their first run. It's going to be hard. It's hard for everyone. So don't let that scare you. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresida. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email that at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community radio station, Joy 94.9. For more podcasts or to support Joy by becoming a member, donating or subscribing, head to joy.org.au.